Hi everyone, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. If you're watching it on the internet or listening to a podcast version of the show, make sure to subscribe so that you get notified when a new show is released. And if you'd like to find links to videos or MP3 files, just go to MiamiGhostChronicles.com and you can also submit any eerie experiences you've had at the Submit Your Story tab. Also, hook up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram where you can find information not only about new shows, but also about monthly free merchandise giveaways. So, get comfortable, enjoy this new episode, and just imagine it's a dark and stormy night where not a creature is stirring, not even a mouse. And if a creature is stirring, you hope it's a mouse. Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles Stories of the Supernatural. The following is an excerpt of a show that I produced about two years ago titled Sadist and Serial Killers from Medieval Times to Now. And this involves a very prolific serial killer that operated out of France, out of Paris, uh, around the years between World War One to World War Two, And his name was... Dr. Marcel Petiot. Uh, he was known by many names once his crimes became discovered, one of them being the Butcher of Paris. Uh, ultimately, uh, the remains of about 23 persons were discovered in the basement of his home, but he suspected of murdering at least 60 victims, possibly more. And uh, one of the worst uh, circumstances of these victims is that they were fleeing the Nazis. These, A lot of these were people that were trying to get out of the country, trying to flee from persecution, and he would dupe them and ultimately kill them. Uh, and if in the background, you're also going to hear me comment with Sam because she was part of the original show. She's a retired law enforcement officer, and we had been commenting about the different behaviors of serial killers. And in this case, one of the things that's... I think, unfortunately, sometimes still holds true is that he was able to operate for as long as he did because, of course, he was a doctor uh, and he held a certain station in life. And, of course, it was during war times or between wars. And sometimes it's found that people, like a doctor, uh, they're not questioned extensively or thoroughly by police. They're taken at their word. And you'll see me comment during the interview how many times he displayed really aberrant behavior that indicated that he was a mentally disturbed man and nobody ever stopped him. Anyway, this is a fascinating look into a very perverse person uh, that ultimately was apprehended. And contrary to what a lot of people think that serial killers only operate in modern times, or prolific serial killers, it's quite the contrary. They've been around for a long time. And this is a prime example of one that, unfortunately, for many years, was able to prey upon Let's the innocent. Let's come into modern times. And uh, we're going to talk about a serial killer, which I ne- never heard about. Okay? I had not heard about this man. Okay? And believe it or not, he was called the butcher of Paris and we're talking about him because it's you're gonna we're gonna laugh it even though it's not funny but it's incredible how long people can get away with things 
because society allows them to get away with things. I mean, he was not as well born as this other ladies like Wintrala, but believe it or not, he was a doctor who operated in Paris between like the early part of the 20th century from around the time of the First World War. His name was Dr. Marcel Petiot. It is called the Butcher of Paris. And believe it or not, I think that this man is so interesting. Number one, because I hadn't heard about him, but because there were so many signs that there was something wrong with him. Okay, basically, he was born in 1897, and what it sounds like, it was like a middle-class family. Now, already, they're saying that in 1914, when he was only six years old, a psychiatrist diagnoses him as mentally ill. Doesn't say exactly what's wrong with him, but okay, his family's being told something wrong with your son, okay? Which, by the way, back then, being mentally ill carried a lot of stigma. So, so for somebody, a psychiatrist, to diagnose you that it was like, there must have been something obvious going on. Anyway, he was expelled from school a lot of times, and, and basically his family finished his education by sticking him in a special academy in Paris in July of 1915. And you know what? And, and the reason why I'm going to bring this up, Sam, is even now, like you say, in modern times, we see a lot of families that are well-connected or that have some type of money where when their kids what was it that kid that um the one in the texas affluenza. the affluenza okay that he because he was drinking caused such a serious accident where was it four people or five people lost their lives and he all he got was probation for it because he was not considered an adult and he runs off his with with the help of his mother, you know. That he he could not understand there was anything wrong. Right, that, that part of the defense against when he went to right when he that basically that when he uh, was taken to trial, it was he so was so well off that he really didn't understand the consequences of what he was doing, you know. Right. Not only did he get away with the death of all those people because he was drinking. Then his mother runs off with him, I think it was to Mexico. Yes. Okay. And finally they were caught. But my point being that back then, I mean, don't get me wrong, I have children of my own and I understand that you want to protect your children. That's understandable. But back then, and the reason why I'm saying is you're going to see what, what happens with this gentleman, that his family is made aware by a medical doctor that they have a child with a mental illness. and. After he's getting kicked out, you know, they put him in, in a in a in a special academy in, in Paris. Okay. He's he does not he's not originally from Paris. So they kind of shipped them off. Probably this was one of those academies where if you paid enough, they would like, we're gonna get you through this. You know, we're gonna say that he finished his schooling. Anyway, he World War One comes around, this is nineteen sixteen. He volunteers, goes into uh, for the French army, okay. Now you know, back in world during World War One, you know, the people were getting gassed. He got wounded and gassed. And they're saying that at that time he exhibited more symptoms of a mental breakdown. Okay, second time this man, somebody's saying, hey, there's something wrong with him. Now he's being sent off to various rest homes, which was typical of soldiers that had been, you know, hurt in the war. And he gets arrested for stealing army blankets, morphine, and other army supplies, as well as a wallet of photographs and letters. Okay. We're talking about somebody 
that is not only stealing things, but he's stealing stuff, like just things for the sake of stealing. All right. Now he's was jailed in Orleans, and then he's he he, um, he sent they sent him to a psychiatric hospital third time again. And when they sent him to the psychiatric hospital, he's diagnosed with various mental illnesses. But he's returned to the front in 1918. So I guess they must have been short on soldiers. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Okay, so this, the, 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 there's all these flags going up. But again, we're talking here 19, the early 1900s. Now, he's not there after the front. He's thinking, I got to get out of here. So three weeks later, uh, he supposedly injured his own foot with a grenade. And... Um, Another diagnosis was given, enough to get him discharged and with a disability pension. So this is the part that I was that I was laughing with, with Sam about. After the war, he enters what they called an accelerated education program intended for war veterans, where he completed medical school in eight months. Eight months. Okay, now this is a man that was expelled from, I guess, the equivalent of high school or whatever. Spanish finishes his schooling in a special academy of parents and okay becomes an intern after an eight month i don't care how accelerated that is and, and, and acknowledge that he's had a mental health yeah, yeah and all the, along the lines he's got all these these things of mental illness okay so he goes and this is another part i'm sorry i have to laugh because it's like ludicrous okay they becomes an intern at a mental hospital can you imagine here you are, mentally ill, treating and becoming a medical doctor, and you're an intern at a mental hospital. Bottom line, he gets his medical degree in December of 1921, okay, and he moves to a town called Villeneuve-sur-Yvonne, okay, and there, well, he's there now. He's a doctor, all right. He's um, basically he's getting money from patients and from the government for medical assistance, okay. Because at this time, I guess France is trying to get doctors to go out there and treat people. So he's getting money from all sides. All right. Now, at this time, he's already using addictive narcotics. I don't know if what they meant by that. We're talking morphine or what or opioids. I don't know what he was using. Uh, now, while he's working there in that city, he starts getting a reputation for what they call dubious medical practices, like such as supplying narcotics performing then illegal abortions and theft for money, uh, the bass drum of a local band, and a stone cross. Again, even I, I think to me, even if this man would not have been officially diagnosed before as mental illness, I would think weren't any anybody around him saying, he might be a doctor, but there's something off about this guy. Mm-hmm. And this is what we were talking about earlier, Sam, that sometimes people's position because he was a doctor you know it was like this mystique about the word is gold their word is gold you know or well he's he's not he's just peculiar he's just eccentric you know that kind of deal even though he's he's the pusher man and he's using narcotics and he's stealing the bass drum of a local band hello i mean to me it's like that's a little bit odd but anyway they're saying that they think they think his first victim was could have been a lady by the name of Louise Delavaux. Okay, she was a daughter of one of his elderly patients, 
and he supposedly had an affair with her back in 1926. Now, all of a sudden, the Laveau disappears in May of that year, which, by the way, you'll see in the few, that this is a trend with people around him. And uh, later on, neighbors say that they had seen him loading a trunk into his car. Now, the police investigate, but they basically dismissed it that she was a runaway. Now, here comes the other kicker. That same year, he runs for mayor of the town. Okay, hire somebody to disrupt his opponent's political debate, and he won. Okay, he becomes a mayor, but while in office, he embezzles the town funds. Okay, I mean, you couldn't make this up if you wanted to. Now, 1927, he marries uh, the 23-year-old daughter of a wealthy landowner, and he also has a son by 1928. So, again, we're seeing that double life where he's the doctor. That's what I'm saying. He's crazy, but he's not that crazy. He does all the normal things to pass himself off where nobody's really going to, like I'm saying, maybe the, the worst it was that he was peculiar, but that he would not be suspected. So, again, that thing is like, You've been diagnosed mentally ill, but how mentally ill are you that you still not only do you function, but you can pass off for kind of normal. Now, during his time, the prefect of that city where he was at started to receive a lot of complaints about his thefts and his shady financial deals and uh, finally suspended him in 1931 as mayor, and he resigns. <laughs> but then he still had a lot of supporters, and the village council resigns in sympathy with him. And then five weeks later, he's elected as a council member. So basically, he loses his job as a mayor and he gets a council seat. And by, by 1932, he's accused of stealing electric power from the village and then he lost his council seat. But he doesn't care because he moved to Paris. All right. So as you can tell, this man, it's incredible. You think, well, is he lucky? But how much of it was luck and how much was things that he was able to get away with because he was permitted to do so? Now he's in Paris. Now remember, this is... We're getting into the time where, in Europe especially, even though the United States didn't get into World War II till 1941, by the 1930s, you already had problems with Hitler and war and all those things. And uh, he's in Paris, and he's attracting patients um, because he uh, basically uh, makes fake credentials for them, all right? Uh, and again, he's still... He's performing illegal abortions and, again, giving excessive prescriptions of addictive remedies. And now, in modern times, we have, you know, these pill mills that now, you know, that, that they're busting up because you get these so-called doctors or clinics, you know, where people go in there for a pain. And all they're walking out with is prescription after prescription that even now... We, you know, one of the main things has been the opioid um, problem that we're having in, in this country mm -hmm. <clears throat> where people start off taking the medicine for a legitimate pain and then they become hooked on it and they can't stop it. And it was because they had a doctor that uh, didn't care to say, hey, I'm only going to give you two weeks worth of this medicine for pain and you're not going to get any more from me, you know. So, um, bottom line, and the, the reason why I'm also bringing that up is that a lot of people think sometimes when these things happen, it's like now. This is this is a problem now. And back then, we're talking, okay, 70 years ago, guess what? 
we have the same thing. We have a doctor who's addicted to opioids, okay, who's prescribing it illegally, just the same as they are now. Okay, so for a lot of those people that telescope and say it's never been as bad as it is now, wrong. All it has now is more fillers. Right, exactly. So anyway, um, anyway, hold on a minute, guys, because I don't know, Sam, are you going to be able to stay? Okay, all right, I just want to make sure because she's got an appointment, a very important appointment to uh to to take care of and i just wanted to make sure that i didn't want to keep her past her time here anyway so let's get back to the butcher of paris okay so anyway here he is he's happily making uh you know money left and right okay uh he's doing illegal abortions he's giving people fake credentials <laughs> he's uh prescribing addictive addictive remedies okay that's what they call them now <laughs> check this out which 1936 He's given a special appointment by the government that allows him to write death certificates. Hello? <laughs> okay. They're giving this man the power to sign off on death certificates. And not only the, the thing is the reason for deaths. Okay. Mm -hmm. So again, where it's, it's incredible, you know, and some people attributed that this was times of war and that there was not the same oversight as there would be other times. But again, now in case you think, well, maybe that's it. That same year, he was briefly institutionalized for kleptomania, okay? But he was released the following year, and he was also involved in tax evasion. So I'm thinking, how many things could go on around this man that nobody was paying attention to, or was it because, like, I was saying he was a doctor, and, you know, like, oh, anyway. Debbie must have had that gift of gab. Or, okay, his personality. Besides being a doctor. Besides, I mean, that he was saying something, and he must have looked genuine. Evil. Which, by the way, sadists and serial killers are known to have that. That they can be very charismatic, you know? That they can know how to fake emotion really well. And they're very charismatic and charming also. We've seen that in killers today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you maybe, maybe on paper you're thinking, well, how could this guy get away with it for so long? But, you know, maybe this guy, whenever somebody would come along and think twice, he'd be like so charming and normal that they're like, nah, can't be. No. Can't be the same person. Can't be the same person. So anyway, back in 1940, Germany defeats France, okay? And people, you know, basically France becomes occupied by the Germans. And, you know, they were taking French citizens. They were grafting them for forced labor in Germany. Now, what he does is, this guy's great. He starts providing false medical disability certificates to people who were drafted, okay? And he started treating them. By the way, I'm sure he was charging a hefty fine for people that wanted those fake certificates. Now, again, in 1942, he's convicted of over-prescribing narcotics. Okay? And there were two addicts who have testified against him. But guess what? They disappeared. Hmm. Okay. So, again, this is another flag. Now, um, later on, He's saying that during this time of the German occupation, he was part of the resistance. You know, I'm sure a lot of people have heard about the French underground resistance movement. Well, he's saying that he was involved in the resistance activities and developing secret weapons and killing Germans without uh, leaving evidence and planting booby traps all over Paris. And he was having all these high-level meetings with Allied commanders, okay, and also working with some of the Spanish anti-fascists 
And all I can tell you is, I don't know if any of you remember that movie, A Beautiful Mind, where the character that Russell Crowe plays has exactly, he has this convoluted, realistic, and he was a, a, a schizophrenic, you know, diagnosed that was based on a true, on a true person, where he, he had exactly that. He saw himself working with government officials, black hat government officials against the Cold War, and basically they were using him to find all these spies, and at the end, it was all make-believe, only in his head. And when I read this, when I looked at this, I was like, this is it, it's not exactly what it is. This guy, something in his mind made him believe that he really was doing this, or not, he was, I don't know. Now, by 1941, remember, this again, Paris is a war-torn city in a war-torn country, but he's making so much money, okay, that he buys a house okay in a very affluent part of Paris and by now he has over 3,000 patients most of which were not poor by the way okay now he goes and um, he does somehow doesn't know how to keep a low profile all right and the Gestapo all right which are running the show at this time they kind they kind of find out about him and believe it or not, at this time, and you're going to see later what I mean, he was saying that he was able to sneak people out of Paris, okay? You know, resistance fighters or Jews or whoever. But we're going to find out later. He wasn't, he wasn't, basically, he was escaping them into a cellar. But anyway, he becomes a legend in his own mind. He comes to the attention of the Gestapo, all right? The Gestapo come to him. Because they hear about his route for the escape of wanted persons, okay, which of course they assume is part of the resistance. And uh, they take a couple of his uh, uh, accomplices or people that, that were sending people to him, okay. And one of the prisoners that they were going to basically, that, well, what they did was they took a prisoner and they said, go to this guy, go to this doctor and tell him that you need to get out of the country and see what happens well guess what the guy disappeared well there goes that one that didn't work so anyway um they they kind of catch up with one of his uh one of the people that would send people his way and uh they torture him and he was using an alias by the name of dr eugene okay um and his accomplices they, they spent a couple of months in jail but Somehow or other, they never identified anybody in the resistance because remember, all they were doing was sending people to him. They never knew supposedly what would happen to him because, of course, supposedly they were going to South America. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anyway, in March of 1944, this is when everything goes sideways for this guy. One of his neighbors in Rue Le Sur, which is where he lived, where he had the house, complains to police that there's a really bad odor in the area and that large amounts of smoke are coming from one of the chimneys of the doctor's house now before that it had been noted that there were other times that the same thing would happen but everybody's just trying to get on with their lives whenever remember this is around the time of the end of the war but this time it was so bad that the, the neighbor goes to complain directly to the doctor when he gets there he finds there's a note on the door of the house saying that the doctor is going to be away for months so he's thinking that there's a chimney fire he calls police and the police when they arrive they find out that this doctor lives in another house nearby they send for him but again they're fearing they've got 
what they call um, an eternal fire in one of the chimneys, and they call the firemen. Firemen get there, and of course they enter the house, and they find this roaring fire in the coal stove of the basement. Now the coal stove, I'm sure even people like me that live in Florida understand that this is what people would use in the basement to keep the rest of the house warm, okay? Well, they found the human arms sticking out of the open door and mixed in with the coal heap were more human remains, bones, limbs, and other parts too small to be identified. Okay, now he arrives and he tells the police sergeant, who must have been thinking, what uh, is this? What would you think, Sam, if you arrived and you found an arm sticking out of a chimney? <laughs> Not an arm in the oven, oven. It'd be like, what? You know, um, he, say, he tells the sergeant, hey, these are all Germans, Nazi collaborators and traitors. Okay, and I'm a head of a resistance group and uh, that the Germans are going to have his head for this. And the sergeant believes him and lets him go. Okay, there you go. Now, they, I guess they investigate a little bit further. Now, they found more remains. At the bottom of the staircase was a sack containing the headless left side of a human body. In the garage was a lime pit filled with corpses at various stages of decomposition. And in the stable, another death pit was located. Now, back in the house, the basement sinks were discovered to be where the corpses had been drained of blood. And they found various... I guess bins uh, located throughout the property containing charred bones, fleshy pieces, scalps, and hair. They also found a soundproof hexagonal chamber, which was also located complete with shackles and a peephole. Here he could chain up his victims and watch their anguish. Okay, now, in case you're wondering what that reminds you of, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of H.H. Holmes. Okay, the serial killer that was abducting people in Chicago during that World Fair, that he had that whole hotel built, okay, with these soundproof rooms where he could torture people, and do all these horrible things to them, and of course, it's soundproof, so nobody could, you know, could hear that. So again, I'm sure most people are familiar with H.H. H. Holmes because he was very famous and a bunch of books have been written about him. And here we had another guy in Paris you know, like 30 or 40 years later, doing something very, very similar. And again, masquerading as uh, a responsible citizen. Anyway, it takes about seven, you know, after they find all this evidence, now this, this sergeant is thinking, I made, a, I made a big mistake by letting him go because he, they eventually, they get, he gets a telegram saying, this guy is a dangerous lunatic. No surprise there. Now, it takes about seven months to finally track him down. Now, in this time, he's hiding all the way with all these friends and family. And he's telling everybody the reason why he's hiding is that the Gestapo's out to get him. Okay, he even moved in with an old patient of his. Let's beard grow and he even gets a different alias. And bottom line, in, uh, Paris is liberated in 1944, okay? And somehow or other, because again, he just can't live a normal life. He's using this alias of Henry Valerie, saying that he was one of the resistance fighters. Well, guess what? When Paris is liberated, somebody writes an article about Henry Valerie. Okay, that's how they become aware of his alias, 
and they finally uh, arrest him at one of the metro stations. Now, um, one of his later on in the trial, it comes out that one of his most lucrative things during the occupation was using that his codename of Dr. Eugene was that he would tell people that he had a way of getting them out of Germany. I mean, if you were if you were trying to escape from the Germans or the Vichy government, that he could get you out of France, okay? And he could uh, arrange passage for you to Argentina or anywhere in South America going through Portugal. I mean, he had it for a price of 25,000 francs, which, by the way, that was a lot of money. But I guess if you were in fear for your life, you would do it. Now, again, he had like three accomplices who would direct people to go to him. And this included... Uh, Jews, resistance fighters, and even ordinary criminals. Anybody that wanted to get out of Paris, France, Europe. Now, what he would do is when they got to him, he would tell them that Argentine officials required that anybody coming into the country needed to be inoculated against disease. But rather than inoculate them, what he was doing them is he would inject them with cyanide or some other drug to knock them out in case he wanted to, I guess, play with them and put them in that soundproof room. Okay, he would then take all their valuables and dispose of the bodies. Now, later on in trial, he's saying the bodies were first dumped into the Seine River. Then, I guess when maybe that too many bodies were showing up, he would dismember them and put the parts in bags. And he would throw them into passing trucks. And then when that got too hard, then he destroyed them by dismembering them and submerging them in quicklime. All right? It was said that at this time, people knew that there was a murder on the loose. There was one of the drivers on, the, on one of these trucks found the grisly contents of one bag, which was two severed heads, two feet, the skin from two legs, like a pair of stockings, and three scalps. Okay. So, and, and think about it. Let's say for just a minute, that theory of all I'm, I'm killing is, you know, criminals and the Nazis. Why would you need to skin anybody with stockings? And all you're going to do is kill them. All right. So again, the sadist thing is absolutely there. Now, <clears throat> after he bought that house on Rue de Sur, he also had the option. I guess this house, it had more space. So he was able to dismember and incinerate them, which is what why those neighbors kept saying, well, we're getting a lot of smoke, bad smelling smoke. Eventually, uh, you know, he goes to prison and nobody believes him, you know, that he was a double agent and blah, 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 blah. Uh, and they find that he really, all his connections and all these so-called resistance groups, they didn't exist. And as part of the evidence that was brought against him, they brought in 47 suitcases belonging to those who had paid him to escape from the Germans. Okay. Um, and they believe that in the end, he killed as many as 160 men, women, and children. Now, this was, I was really surprised. On May 25th, he was beheaded by guillotine. I did not know that at that time, France still had that mode of execution. Okay? I was, I, I don't know. I thought they were hanging people or something like that. So, getting back to what we were talking about, 